0: Hello and welcome to Analyzing Finance with Nick. This is part four. Oh man, we're getting deep under the surface now of the iceberg of economics. Uh, Parts one through three are basically things you would have learned in an economics class. Now we're starting to get into a little bit more niche and heterodox ideas it's gonna get interesting. First one is Freakonomics. Freakonomics was a book. I remember reading this book when I was in high school when it came out in two thousand and five. Uh, it was written by Steven B. D. Levitt and Stephen J. Dubner. Um, it was probably one of the most successful in terms of best-selling books on economics that I can remember. And it's really about how you can apply the practice and the study of economics to things that you wouldn't think would be because economics fundamentally is the uh, study of incentives. And they look into certain circumstances about how the economics underlying um, of s- certain niches of the society, which people don't really associate with economic, the more social problems and how changes in policy have created new incentives that led to a different than expected outcome. The most controversial one in this example is the idea of the, which I think is going to be talked about later in this iceberg, but the role of legalized abortion and its impact in reducing crime. Uh, you saw a lot of studies and crime rate data that have seen that starting about 16 years after Roe v. Wade um, became law of the land and that Supreme Court case took place, you started to see a material drop in crime rates and that crime rates continued to drop throughout that period. And the argument really that free economics writers made is that um, People who would have been normally born into tougher circumstances and therefore would have had to pursue a life of crime uh, were never born because they were aborted, because abortion was legal and more easily accessible after Roe v. Wade. Uh, That's kind of one example. Um, Another example would be about economic outcomes, depending on how... um, your children are named, like people who have names that are intentionally misspelled or seem like they are from a lower class than other names tend to have worse economic, particularly um, employment outlooks because people will judge somebody's resume based on their name Uh, and so there's actually a controversial book that goes more into this that I will put a link in the description if you're curious Uh, that goes into the whole economics of this and etymological origins of it. But that's kind of the the idea of Freakonomics. The main criticism is that people thought that it was really just a rationalization for libertarianism, the book as a whole. Uh, Its main critics are not really other economists but more sociologists. And criminologists, and they say that they use um, spurious correlations and to create um, an economic framework in parts that there aren't there. If you want the full criticism, you can listen to a podcast called "If Books Could Kill." But notably, those guys do have a left-wing bias, which may have been to impact their criticism. But I would say that's the best recap of why people do not like this book. Uh, then uh, the next thing we're going to talk about in this level of the iceberg is externalities, which I have talked about in environmental economics. I mean, I know it's a pattern of this iceberg, it's a lot of issues with the environment. Um, and externalities don't always have to be an environmental cause, but that's just the easiest example. Externality is a side effect of an economic decision, positive or negative, that somebody else has to pay other than the buyer or the seller in the transaction. So say if you have a car plant and it's along a river, the seller produces cars and sells them to the buyer who lives in a town two states away. That this river doesn't flow through. However really as a byproduct of this manufacturing of cars, the factory releases all of its toxic pollution into the river and as a result the river becomes poisonous, the fish die, um, people who live down the river have unhealthy drinking water, Or just the environment gets damaged due to the lack of biodiversity because of all the plants and the fish and other things in the river dying. And therefore the things that naturally eat those have food shortages and it creates an environmental mess. However, the car seller doesn't have to pay for that because they pollute in the river because it saves them money versus having to recycle that pollution or to find some way to process that and take care of it so that it doesn't pollute the river. So they save money. They benefit from releasing this narrative externality. The buyer lives two states away, is not affected by the consequences of this river, but the people who live down the river and people who live in that community now have a polluted river are affected. So that's an externality. That's a negative externality. And... The way you solve for externalities is that you try to change the economic incentives so that those who participate in the transaction need to compensate those who are being damaged by the externalities or you penalize them for creating the negative externalities for a third party that had nothing to do with it. Uh, So in this case the government would mandate some sort of regulation that Um, they have to find a way to treat their pollution substances and not dump it in the water. Or if this was a more private system and that river was owned by other property owners in the area, they could take the factory to court for polluting their river and destroying their town. So it's not necessarily a top-down central planning solution to this necessarily, but... The externalities do need to be dealt with because otherwise um, you're going to have those committing these negative externalities are going to do it without any abandonment, uh, with reckless abandon because there's no punishment for it. And there are going to be positive externalities too. They're not always negative. Like, say for example, um, you have an industry, like you have a ranch. And one of the positive externalities is that you have a bunch of fertilizer from your cows that you can use to grow wheat in a different farm. That really the person buying the meat is not necessarily affected by that unless if that grain is fed to the cows later. But but that's a I guess a positive an example of a positive externality. But generally externalities when we talk about economics are more about mitigating negative externalities than creating positive externalities uh, the next one is the calculation problem i talked about this in communism and socialism but it's the idea that you can't have bureaucrats and academics even if they're the smartest minds in the world they do not know how to properly allocate everything into the economy um, more than what the market would like if you had this was the problem with soviet union and a lot of these other eastern bloc countries is that these people who they, they their policymakers had no idea how many cars should be in the dealership how many how much loaves of bread should be in each grocery store in every town in the soviet union they didn't really know what the salaries should be for every doctor in every city i could give them a bunch of examples but that was what like the market is better at weighing and making these decisions on a collective basis than um, having some sort of bureaucrats deciding this, especially if they have no actual practical experience in these fields as a market participant. Uh, the main argument into, uh, against the uh, calculation problem is now as one of technology. It's like now with AI and big data and a history of collecting this data over the last decade could the ai or an artificial intelligence supercomputer solve the calculation problem and actually know what it is like but i don't think people are perfectly rational or they can predict the emotion i don't think a computer can predict the emotional swings of consumer purchasing power like the exact trade-off that every person has to buy something that's More expensive versus a cheaper substitute. I think this would be very difficult even with an AI. So I think you're gonna see people challenge this critique of the calculation problem more frequently as AI continues to capture the the public imagination. The next one we're gonna talk about is Austrian economics. Austrian economics Arguably along with Marxist economics are the two most popular heterodox schools of economics, and they happen to be on the opposite side of the spectrum on the capitalism versus communism debate. Uh, the reason why it's called the Austrian school of economics is because a lot of its early thinkers such as Ludwig von Mises, Friedrich Hayek, and uh, Karl Menger all happen to be from Austria. Our today... Austrian economics is most studied and practiced in the United States of America with the leading universities who um, of, of Austrian economics include Auburn University in Alabama, or the Ludwig von Mises Institute, is, uh, New York University, Loyola, New Orleans, and George Mason. Uh, Austrian economics is something I have some personal sympathies for, but I would not really consider myself an Austrian, because I think a lot of the analysis um, and framework is flawed um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, the first really thing with Austrian economics is the idea that, and this is coming out of the book Human Action by Ludwig von Mises, that um, people are individuals and not collectives, and so therefore you cannot really accurately Predict or measure aggregate supply, aggregate demand, and how people react to shifts in those because everybody has different preferences. People are people, people do not act in groups. And that applies to microeconomics as well. And so, as a result, Mises mentioned this whole idea that you have to have a subjective framework, like a, for lack of a better term, a postmodern economics in a way which he called praxeology which is actually a topic in the next iceberg so I'll elaborate more on that there but praxeology really is my main issue with Austrian economics It's the idea that economic truths have to be can only really be done a priori through theoretical um, economic truth and deductive reasoning and thought experiments um, those were just as accurate as an econometric model, if not more, because you cannot quantify human action. And so they um, heavily argue against econometrics or any sort of way to add data or mathematics or like any way to make it more scientific. And even um, as somebody who does have a sympathy for the policy outcomes of Austrian economics, if you can't really back it up or at least don't try to back it up with some sort of empirical data, how is this different than philosophy or um, theology or any sort of other things that's just solely based on a priori knowledge? That's my critique issue with Austrian economics personally. However, maybe they're the more honest ones and if you go back to the political economy argument that I've mentioned several times on this channel, maybe all schools of economics are really there to just justify a pre-given policy solution and you just create the framework. And maybe the traditional economists think that if you put a bunch of pointless math equations behind it, then voila! My theories sound more scientific and official because I can fit it into a nifty equation and math problem. And that would be the Austrian critique of the quantification of economics, or really just my critique of where I think that praxeology could... If you're going to argue for it, that's how you would argue for it. Uh, You have... um, other things that I do like about Austrian economics though, is its emphasis on opportunity costs. Um, they were the kind of really the first ones to really impact that into economic analysis and has since been adopted by the mainstream the idea that everything that is done now uh, economic action or not economic action has a consequence versus the thing you couldn't do. So say, for example, uh, you decide to start a business and by quitting your job and deciding your business, you're giving up the opportunity cost of that salary from your stable job and the upside potentially from that um, for the freedom of starting the business and the potential further upside in the long run. Um, the same thing with buying a house. If you buy a house in a certain city, you now no longer have those funds to buy the same house or a different house in another city. and that's that's opportunity cost and i think austrians have really been the first to kind of dive into that the other thing is their definition of inflation Um, the the traditional neoclassical definition of inflation is just using the cpi and just saying oh the change in cpi over this period is inflation whereas the austrian definition of inflation is just the increase in the quantity of money even if it hasn't shown up yet in the CPI, the CPI is lagging. And so the inflation has already happened. It's just where it's going to express. And the Austrians make the correct point is that um, inflation is not evenly distributed in the CPI basket. So if the government prints 40% of the currency in a year and that doesn't show up in a 40% increase in the CPI, that doesn't mean the inflation didn't happen. Maybe that was put into speculative assets and we have an asset bubble now. Maybe it was all put into real estate and we've seen real estate inflation now at 70% and everything else is at zero. And it just averages out to a CPI really with real estate being about 40% of the basket. of It ends with a CPI of only 28% even though you've seen all that money really increase a 70% increase in housing. So... I actually think that the Austrian definition of inflation is probably the better one in terms of like actually how much the money has the value of money has declined. Just because the in a fiat currency world, or it's really in a monet, any monetary system, uh, the, the value of money is really its scarcity of supply when it comes down to it, on a relative basis to other money. That's why the Austrians tend to be very pro-gold and pro-gold standard because uh, the government cannot use seniorage on gold. The, the supply of gold is relatively fixed. Sure, it grows from new mining, but mining is consistently maybe increases the supply about 2 or 3% a year. It's not really going to, especially in the level of how much we've already drilled out all the quote-unquote easy ore out there. It's, it's going until until gold asteroids um, are viable to start mining, which may actually kind of destroy the Austrian argument. But we're a well long ways from that. The the, the relative constancy of gold makes it a much more better way to benchmark your money because it's actually a store of value. And also, this is why Austrians tend to be sympathetic to things such as Bitcoin because Bitcoin tries to digitally hard code that fixed scarcity of gold. Um, And I think the most valuable contribution to Austrian economics is the Austrian business cycle theory. Uh, The Austrian business cycle theory is that central banks, and particularly the banks, the effects of the central banks on monetary policy impacting the growth of credit from the private sector banks is what causes business cycles. So if you artificially hold Interest rates low that increases credit more than it would be in a normal um, economic circumstances when interest rates are at whatever the market would dictate them. That causes a speculative boom. That causes um, a lot more capital to be flooded in the system that would be normally. That creates excesses, and then along with animal spirits and speculation, that propels it forward, and that keeps going until either. Um, The central bank raises interest rates above um, the equilibrium rate to try to stave off inflation. Or even if the central bank doesn't do anything, eventually you're going to need to pay back that newly created money supply with interest on top of it. And if the economy actually fundamentally didn't grow enough to pay the interest, which is every cycle eventually gets to that point, it creates a... Um, A debt deflationary bust and all of the gains from upside go back down. And that is how the Austrian business cycle works. Um, The Austrian business cycle has a more accurate reflection of things such as the financial crisis in 2008 than the conventional business cycle would. And it really pins the issues of the central banks trying to central plan the money supply and the price of money. As a result, really, with the Austrians' critique of central banking, the Austrians' positive view on gold versus fiat currency, and the Austrian general view that since you can't quantify things accurately or make models, you can't really expect a central planner to be able to do anything efficiently just based on a priori. They really believe in no government intervention or absolute minimum government intervention in the economy. Because only people individually know how to make the right economic decisions for themselves. And therefore that results in the most um, efficiently allocated economy. And they are probably right on this in a theoretical model. The other concern I have with Austrian economics, not because I necessarily agree with this, but just the reality of the world, we've had so many decades of governments fighting letting the inevitable austrian bust fully play out and the markets get to the clearing level where um, you can have a healthy foundation for growth Um, as a result you've created a society that's heavily dependent on easy money whether that is through people living off of social welfare payments who otherwise wouldn't be able to financially support themselves or you have a lot of businesses who've borrowed a lot of money based on lower interest rates, and now the interest rates are up, um, their revenues can't even pay down their principal, sometimes they can't even cover their interest, and these are what we know as zombie companies, That if we did do an Austrian, sure, let's have everything clear in the next crisis, we decided to go full Austrian, and everybody went behind it, there's a real chance the survivor doesn't recover, because so many people are dependent on all these manipulations of the market that those who are no longer financially viable getting cut off they might just start marauding the streets and violently acting out and society just kills each other from the withdrawal. It's kind of like a drug addict being cut cold turkey. In theory cold turkey is really the best solution to addiction but if your system is so heavily dependent like biochemically to that substance a lot of times when people try to go cold turkey from a um from a from substance that they've been abusing they often die because their bodies become so dependent on it they cannot really their bodies adapted to functioning with it they they don't have the hormonal balance or the other things that they're needed to be functioning so like you would like a lot of doctors would solve this problem by slowly weaning somebody off of the addictive substance and sometimes that doesn't even work if the patient's too far gone and that is the main risk also of Austrian economics and I again I'm somebody who would think an Austrian style market clearing event would probably be a great way to um, to create a healthier foundation after the next down cycle. However, Maybe our society is so dependent on easy money um, and the amount of excess government spending that has been enabled by it that if we tried that today, the patient would just die and the country would collapse into anarchy uh, or civil war or something worse. So, yeah, that's my thoughts on Austrian economics. I may split this just as a separate video because I've, I've wanted to talk about my views on this for a while. Uh, The next one is Piketty, R greater than G. Um, This is from a book, Capital in the 21st Century, written by Thomas Piketty. This book really kind of triggered the whole revival of the income inequality debate, which was a really popular thing in the 2010s before the pandemic, um, where you saw the Gini coefficient in the United States as high as it was during the Gilded Age. And um, people were complaining about how young people can't get ahead or the rich are getting everything and the gap between rich and poor are wide. And Thomas Piketty, through his book, tried to create an economic framework on why this is happening and um, a set of policy solutions to justify his goal of lowering income inequality. I did a video about income inequality, which I'll have in the description, where I argued that. Income inequality in itself is not fundamentally a bad thing. So that's where my bias comes from. I'm going to try to be unbiased when I explain this. Uh, his So the main flaw he ha- has with the whole capitalist growth model is that the idea that the required return on investment, which is R, is structurally greater than G, which is nominal GDP growth rates. Like If you look at, for example, S&P 500 returns over the last 10 years, about 10% a year versus nominal GDP in the United States, which is about 5% a year on average, uh, you see that uh, there's been a lot more return to investors than there has been in actual economic growth. And so, if, therefore, if you have a society whose wages generally grow with nominal GDP where then versus investors whose returns increase by the R, then you're going to have perpetually widening inequality as long as there's economic growth. And that is kind of his argument, fundamentally, is that unless if you change that equation, Economic growth is not necessarily good because it creates more inequality. Well, there's a few flaws to this logic. First, he's only talking about when the market goes up. In a recession, let's just say nominal GDP is flat in a recession. Oftentimes, it's still positive because of inflation. But even in the GFC, when you had 0% inflation and a, it's worse, a 6% um, annualized pace of contraction, it was minus 6 uh, the stock market was down 50 percent, and real estate prices were down nationwide 40 to 50 percent, depending on what city you were in. So, it, it's a double-sided coin. When markets are down and the economy is doing bad, that the G is higher than the R, but they only look at it on one side of the coin. The other thing is a lot of this spread inequality. Is also, as I mentioned in my video, a product of increased longevity. If people are living longer, they have more years to compound their savings, and so therefore their wealth is growing more. I mean, I would like to see the Gini coefficient among age groups and see if that is materially different. Uh, the second is that you had a, a perpetually falling interest rates for 30 years, and you have a cycle of lower rates. Lower rates, lower the required return on investment that are, and that increases valuations. And if people who, um, the wealthy tend to have more assets, and so their assets are going up because of this, and therefore the inequality widened. So if you had a period of rising interest rates like the 70s, you had massive drops of inequality because asset prices fell, but wages were going up because of inflation. So a lot of it is just maybe him just, zooming in from 1980 to when his book was written, the early 2010s, was just a period that interest rates were perpetually going down. Uh, If he looked at a different cycle, it would have painted a different outcome. And what's going on currently with interest rates and inflation and other um, supply and demand dynamics, it looks like we could be seeing the reverse interest rate cycle that we saw from 1980 to 2020, and it would kind of debunk a lot of his theory and even if r is greater than g why is that necessarily a bad thing investors need to be compensated for taking risk if r was less than g why would anybody take any risk and not just buy treasury bonds Uh, they wouldn't because they're not getting paid for it Um, it, investors are rational to the point that they're not going to take risk even if they expect to lose money, that's called gambling. You go to Las Vegas, that's what that's built off of. Uh, people will just stop investing and you'll have your own fair share of problems. And usually there's a good book about this, which I think I mentioned in my one-minute book reviews. But it really kind of uh, – I'll put the title in the description Just I'm lost off the top of my head. But it, 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 there's an economist who analyzed the – um, the periods in history when income inequality went down, and they were always associated with crises, whether it was a war, whether it was a major financial crisis, or a civil war, or famine, or something bad. Because income inequality doesn't usually generally go down from more prosperity. Income inequality historically goes down when. Their capital stock is destroyed and therefore the rich who own the capital um, lose their wealth due to capital destruction or the government seizing their money. That, and Piketty doesn't really seem to realize that he is basically calling for um, a collective reduction of living standards. I mean, fine, you have more equality, but everybody equally poor, is that really a better outcome than... A society where living standards are generally going up, but some people are gaining more than others. Um, Food for thought. Uh, The next one is rational expectations, which is something that the Austrians certainly don't like. Uh, It's the idea that uh, individuals make economic decisions in a rational way. Uh, People, for example, with the investors. Investors will not invest if they're not compensated to take the risk, or people will not buy something if their utility from buying it is not higher than the value that they have of keeping the money. Um, in, the- like, in practice, this probably is not true because, and that's what the whole field of behavioral economics is based on, people make irrational decisions all the time. Again, look at the existence of Las Vegas or the fact that the... Um, Financial markets are not efficient as good examples of that. But nevertheless, you have to have the rational expectations to create models. Because maybe every individual may not be rational, but if you have the extreme irrational on one side of the rationality scale of the other, theory they should cancel each other out. I'm not really sure if this is entirely true. I mean, there are... A lot of research to show that um, such as books written by Dan Ariely and the work of Richard Daler in behavioral economics or even a book called The Myth of the Rational Voter talking about irrational voting patterns that are consistent even as people get more informed and as economic circumstances change. That there are certain behavioral trip-ups that people consistently make and maybe those need to be factored into economic models more accurately. The last one on this is Modern Monetary Theory, which is another heterodox school of economics that has pretty much the opposite policy solutions to Austrian economics. Um, And Its main idea is that the government issues its own fiat money, and because of that, the government can never default on its debt. And also, the government could always print as much money as they want to pay all of their debts. So the government doesn't ever have to physically balance a budget because they can just print the money with really no consequence. The only consequence is inflation. And inflation is really the sign that you are producing too much money. And instead of trying to... um use monetary policy and fiscal policy to control um, economic growth you can instead have unlimited fiscal policy um, and you try to control the rate of inflation and the way you control the rate of inflation is either through through taxation not through interest rate policy Uh, there's no in the modern monetary r- world, you don't need to raise rates, you don't need to cut government spending, you really just play around with the tax rate instead. And so say and also modern monetary theorists believe that there should not be any unemployment. The fact that there's an unemployment rate, which means the government is underspending, as not fully maximizing the potential of the economy. And as a result, one of the policy solutions for modern monetary theory is that the government should have guaranteed jobs for anybody who can't find a job in the private sector uh, because they can. and full employment is a as a goal so that everybody is able to support themselves. Uh, that that's um, and so they control the tax rate. so, If, say, for example, if inflation's too high, you raise taxes, particularly the um, taxes on those with the most money to spend. And so, as a result, if people um, don't have money to spend anymore, their disposable income is down because taxes are high. Then inflation will come down because there's less demand. Uh, In in modern monetary theory world, inflation is demand pull, and so therefore. If there's no demand to pull the inflation inflation will come down and say for example inflation is too low and the economy is in recession because nobody has any money to spend then the solution would be either to increase government spending or to cut taxes and you, you the cycle repeats like instead of the Fed which tries to manage the economy through raising and lowering interest rates the modern monetary theorists believe you do that by uh, fiscal policy, particularly raising and lowering taxes. Um, the main real issue for this is that mainstream economists think that one, there's only first of all, there's a ceiling of how high you can raise taxes. Like above a certain level, people will either move or simply not produce. And I guess in theory, you could cut them right back again to get people to produce. But if you keep doing this over and over again to play around with the economy, who's going to start a business if there's a risk that their tax rate goes up to 90% to slow down inflation from a government refusing to cut spending? Uh, It makes it very hard to make business decisions if the tax rates are constantly fluctuating. Uh, Also, they basically just encourage... Universal basic income, or guaranteed jobs, or and and having the government print to pay for it, and that's going to be very inflationary. I mean, we kind of experimented MMT light with all the stimulus packages around the world in response to the pandemic, and the result was forty-year high inflation. And really, ever since you've had that spike of inflation, um, modern monetary theory has all of a sudden become a lot less popular. And I think the reason it did become popular because because um, when Bernie Sanders was running for president in 2016 and 2020, there was no way he could have justified his fiscal policy using any mainstream economic framework. And so in order to have what is like, again, put a rubber stamp behind your policy goals, uh, Reagan did this with trick, trickle-down economics. Uh, and Bernie did this with MMT. I did a whole video of this called The Political Economy. You have to have find somebody who creates a framework that says that your policies will not destroy the economy and, in fact, will be good for the economy and that achieving your social goals is also the best for the long-term economic outlook. And so that's why um, Bernie hired Stephanie Kelton, who's a Stony Brook professor who has been one of the leaders of modern monetary theory, along with Warren Mosler, who was the previous most popular voice in monetary theory before um, Kelton became more popular due to her uh, becoming the official economic advisor for the Sanders campaign. But that is modern monetary theory. It's really that deficits don't matter. inflation is just the re- is the idea of whether the econ- um whether the government is there's too much demand in the economy or not and you use tax rates and particularly raising taxes not cutting spending or raising interest rates as the means to keep the economy in check uh, it basically just gives the government a free card to do whatever they want and it means that playing around with the, and so that's, but that again, it's, as you see, that's, as if people have tried this on the light level, similar to Keynesian in the sense. Yeah. Um, people, the government's like the idea of the, oh, I could spend when I want, especially during down times, but when it's time to do the other side of it, which is raise taxes to extremely high levels to keep inflation in check, either there's no political will to do it, or, or these policymakers, aren't for it and so therefore the whole system falls apart because it relies on politicians to have to do the hard thing. Now that concludes this layer of the iceberg and well, we're going to move on to the next one.